This is Inside the Writer's Head with Emma Carlson Byrne, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2018 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here now is Emma Carlson Byrne. Hello all, I'm Emma Carlson Byrne, this year's Public Library Writer-in-Residence and the host of Inside the Writer's Head. My guest this month is Michelle Bisson. She's the Senior Acquisitions Manager at Capstone, which is a large publisher of educational books for children. Until just a couple of months ago, Michelle was also the Senior Managing Editor at Capstone. And I have been lucky enough to have Michelle as my editor on several of my very favorite nonfiction books. We've often worked together on a series called Captured History, and I can tell you that Michelle is both smart and fun to talk to, lively and considerate. She's got what can be a rare knack among editors. She's a partner to the author rather than the boss. Oh, and did I mention that Michelle is herself the author of a new picture book, Hetty's Journey, the true story of a Hungarian girl fleeing the Holocaust. Michelle, I hope you're going to tell us about this picture book a little later. But first, welcome, and I'm so glad that you could talk with us today. Oh, thank you very much. I'm happy to talk about uh, my picture book as well as editor. Well, that's just great. And Michelle, you have been an editor and a publisher for a long time. Um, tell us a little bit about how you started out. What was your first editing job? Did you set out to be an editor out of school, or is this something that you fell into along the way? Well, the answer to this is all of the above, just about. <laughs> I, I grew up in New York City, and I wanted to be a writer when I grew up, and I thought, okay, but I will need a job, so I'll get a job in publishing. Very but, practical of you. But that was not to be. Uh, publishing did not agree with me about this plan. Um, and at the time, I'm old enough that when I first graduated from college and was looking for a publishing job, if you were female, you had to get a job first as a secretary in publishing. Oh, that my was, Lord. Yeah. And, but nobody in their right mind would hire me as a secretary. You know, they could tell that, not secretary material. So that meant I did not get a job in publishing. But I did go to work for the American Lung Association, where I worked as a production assistant. And in fact, my first assignment there was to write a book. Um, I wasn't supposed to be writing a book, but they had hired an artist to write a book about kids with asthma. She had talked them into it. They had given her a lot of money. Uh, it was a great sounding book with games and uh, poems and workbooks and all kinds of stuff. And then she said, oh, I don't feel like writing it. So so I got hired and my boss said, just go sit with her in her studio until she writes it. And, <laughs> and so I did that. I went to 31st Street and I would sit all day. And in fact, she would just talk all day. And <laughs> send me home at five and she'd call me. She'd figure out after a while how long it took me to get home. And then she would call me with ideas for the book. And, and between those nighttime sessions and then my boss and I taking it and putting it together ourselves, we wrote the book. And, and then I moved to Seattle and did a whole lot of other things. I had a lot of editing jobs. I had a lot of reading jobs. 
I went to school for journalism. I got a graduate degree in journalism. I wrote a lot of book reviews, but everything that I've ever done sort of happened by mistake. So yes, <laughs> me too. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's pretty funny. I could go on, but <laughs> anyway, so I moved back to the East Coast and I was working, doing of all things, copy editing for Merrill Lynch, the financial. Okay. <laughs> yeah. They paid a lot of money and it was a job. And I came home one night and I had an answer on my, uh, a message on my answering machine. And this is how long ago it was. <laughs> and it said, the woman on the line said something like social issues, children's, but that was all I could hear. And I thought, I have no idea what she's talking about. And so I went on with my life. And about a month later, the same woman called back and it was a little bit more comprehensible. And I wasn't quite sure what she said, but I thought, well, let me call her back. And as it turned out, a year before this, I had applied for a job with a children's book publisher in New Jersey, where I was then living, but I'd forgotten about it because I never heard from them. And I didn't expect to, because this is 20 years down the line, but they were looking for a social issues editor. And as a journalist, I had worked on social issues. And so... I went for an interview and I interviewed with the owners and it was a massive pay cut, but it was what I'd always wanted to do, go into publishing, though I'd certainly never thought it would be this way. And I'd never thought about children's publishing. That hadn't been an interest of mine at all. Uh, but I, I took the job and the rest is history. That was 20 years ago. Well, Michelle, I just love that that you came into it by accident. That's how I found my own way to writing, and I feel like practically everything else has happened to me. It's really interesting as but talking to you know other writers and editors how many of us have similar stories that we actually did not set out to do this, but we have found ourselves in it happily. Absolutely. It is cool to hear other people's stories about it. Definitely. So talk to us about the editing side of your life a little bit. Um, let's start out by talking about some of the specific projects that you've worked on, some of your favorites. Tell us what you edit specifically. You and I have worked on nonfiction books together, but do you also edit fiction? You know, just give us kind of an overview of, of what you work on in your daily um, editing life. Yes. Well, as mentioned, I have been doing this kind of editing for 20 years, which means that I have edited almost everything, uh, every type of book in for kindergarten through uh, high school, through 12th grade. And though my specialty and the areas I like best are what is considered in children's fic uh, fiction and nonfiction upper level. And upper level can mean, as you know, uh, you know anything from fourth grade up. Mm -hmm. So the Captured History books that we do together, those are upper level for Capstone because they're meant for the middle school level. And my loves tend to be history and um, upper level books, social justice books. In fact, when I was at Enslow uh, and um, Marshall Cavendish, the two publishers before this, I worked on a Supreme Court landmarks books. I worked on issues books, looking at things like gun control from both sides. And those kinds of books are a big interest of mine. I've also edited fiction, and I do really enjoy editing fiction. But it's a very different 
ball game from nonfiction on the kids' side. So as a writer um, for many years, I am very used to editing and critiquing friends' manuscripts or people in workshops, but it's very different when you're dealing with adult manuscripts than with children's, because for children's, you're not just looking for story, you're also looking for whether it really suits the needs of the marketplace, whether it's age appropriate, um, whether it meets new trends and, um, and things that customers are looking for and the things that customers are looking for or that we think they're looking for uh, can be a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about rural children, stories um, that are about black kids who are just middle-class kids in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot of different things. How do you work somebody, uh, a story that is, oh, about a haunted house, how do you fit kids in it who aren't just your typical, you know, everybody is, is a white kid and everybody is perfectly healthy. How do you put a disabled kid into a story without it all being about the disability, right. but without it walked over? So there's a lot of that to deal with and that's very interesting in a different way that dealing with say social justice issues. Yes, I I can appreciate that listening to you talk. I'm just thinking about all of the fiction manuscripts that I've worked on in which I and the editor are trying to balance all of those um all of those aspects all at the same time and tell a good story too. Absolutely. So, Michelle, ha- tell us, let's get um, a specific story from you. Can you pick out a book or a series that you've edited recently or in the more distant past that really stands out for you? It could have been particularly difficult or particularly rewarding, um, but one that like when you think back to your you know, long career in editing, it really just sort of pops out in your mind. And tell us a little bit of like the story of that book and this, or the story of the series. Well, I think I will talk about Capture History. Uh, Great. A, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a series that I have been working on recently that I came to, in fact, not as the original editor of the series, but we have a process at Capstone where you have an editor and then you have someone known as an editorial approver, which is somebody who is a, a peer or a manager who looks over what the editor has done, um, mostly to find the things that one person is always going to miss. That's the one thing about being an editor is no matter how great you are, or a writer for that matter, no matter how wonderful you are, you're going to miss something. Always. Always. And so you need somebody to do that. And Capstone is unique in my experience of having someone who does that, which I think is great. So... I came into Captured History then the easy way as the editorial approver on a series of books that one of my favorite editors worked on, and I just loved them. And when she retired, I jumped to take them over. And I think the thing about Captured History, of course, you know what they are, right. but Captured History starts from the idea that history can be a moment in history can be captured by a photograph. So for Kent State, which is one of the books that jumps out at me. The, the photograph is, of course, of the uh, massacre of four students at, at Kent State during the Vietnam War era. Uh, there are some that are a lot less uh, painful, but most moments in history, you know, the sinking of the Titanic, 
it's less personally painful, but it, it's it's pretty horrible. I mean, ghost capture history is <laughs> is going to be something bad that happens. Yes. With the you know, we have the two things like Blue Earth, which is you know the moon, uh, the Earth, space, things like that. Right. But I love the whole concept that you can take a moment in history and look at it through a photograph, look at it through the photographer's eyes. What was he or she thinking? How did they come upon it? To to expand on what we were talking about earlier, a lot of the times you find that the photographs happened by accident. Yes. They, they, to be there. They didn't know what they were getting. Uh, you know, was didn't know how important it would be, even if they did know what they were getting. Right. And so that's great. And it's also one of the things about captured history that I find so interesting is that these books are about ten thousand words long. They're so not very long. Um they're longer than a third grade book, but they are, they're not very long books. And yet so much is captured in that short amount of space in those few pages. And of course, a lot of the, the reason for that, of course, is that every page or every spread has a photograph on it. But still, the, you pack in an awful lot and the photograph is so much a part of the story. But I also have been... Uh, blessed really by having great writers for the series. You among them, uh, the writers bring great passion to their subjects and, and really and really love them, and it makes the series that much more enticing and interesting. Well, and I really appreciate hearing that, Michelle, and um, we can just make this a big love feast, but I have really <laughs> loved working on the series with both the previous editor and with you, and what has been fascinating uh, on the writerly end is just getting a chance to just go really deep into a subject, to learn, you know, during the book that was about summoning Everest, what were they carrying in these crates that they trekked all the way across Nepal? You know, when I wrote about Frederick Douglass, it was learning about the photographers behind all of his photographs. Really, it's just a, a, a chance for me just to geek out um, and do a whole lot of reading, which like, you know, what's better than that, really? So, Michelle... The life of an editor, I think, is shrouded in mystery for a lot of writers. At least it is for me to some extent. I mean, editors are gatekeepers and they are decision makers and ideally they're partners. But, you know, for a lot of us writers, editors are voices on the end of the phone or on email. So I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about your daily life as an editor. Could you take us through a typical day of yours, step by step? Tell us, how do you spend your time at the office? Like, what are you doing all day? Going to fancy <laughs> meetings and like, you know, lighting cigars with money or like, you know, or something else. Yeah, that's definitely what we do. <laughs> that's what I thought. <laughs> and, and of course, we're drinking constantly oh, while we're doing those cigars. Very decadent, yeah. I assume. Right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we do have a cookie club. So yeah. <laughs> that's a, that sounds more like it. So that is really more like it. And of course, as anyone would say, well, there's no typical day, but I will give you uh, an idea of what it's like to uh, at least start a day and go through a manuscript. Yeah, let's um, lift the veil a little bit. Yeah. And, and so it depends what stage you're on. But a typical day in the office, to begin with, starts with going through the mountain of email 
that no matter what you've done the day before has amassed in your inbox. And that's going to be internal and external and people wanting stuff. And yes, we have a lot of meetings as well. Um, many of those meetings are about tracking manuscripts that are in progress because any ma manuscript has a deadline and we have two publication seats, uh, seasons a year. And we have to meet, that's kind of starting from the back in a way, that's the bottom line. We have two publication seasons a year and we have to have the books ready to go to print by a certain date. And then you work backwards if you're lucky, six months. If you're not lucky, which usually we're not, <laughs> two to three months. And, and it's two to three months. You have a, a lot to do because as you start the process, the process really starts with figuring out what are the books we're going to do this season. And so there are a lot of meetings that have to do with brainstorming ideas for what are the, what do we want to do? What do we need to do? Um, what would work with the list? And so there's input from sales and marketing and other people in the publishing arm to see whether these books will work. But let's just pretend that we got, we're doing captured history and we already know that we love the series and we have ideas that have passed. You still have to start off a writer. And so we have what's called the project brief and the project brief spells out what a writer needs to do. And so we've sent that, we've sent a contract and one of the things a writer needs to do is an outline. And so we get in an outline. And so when we get in an outline, we have to read it. And the first thing that happens when I get an outline from anybody is I think, I don't want to read this. <laughs> Who wants to read an outline, really? It's like all the work and none of the fun. Yeah. And, and what, if, what if I miss something because it's only an outline? And then they send me a manuscript and, and they'll, you know, I won't think it's exactly right. And they'll say, but you you approve the outline. And so, <laughs> so all, all of the pressure and none of the fun, really. There you go. So then I answer emails because that's more fun. Than, you know. <laughs> but eventually, eventually, okay, I have to look at this outline. And so what I do is I try to read the outline without immediately jumping on it or saying it's okay, because I'll have both impulses to just say, yeah, this is great. You know, especially with writers I've used many times before, which is often the case. Uh, I have to really resist the temptation to just say, yes, you know what you're doing. Go ahead. So I will try to look at it and not comment. I usually cannot do that because as an editor, I can't help myself. Uh, so I will make some comments and then I will put it away because and you can never look, I think there is this idea that editors just copy it or just proofread or just look at something once. And, and if you do that, you're not editing anything because there's no way you can have thought about it. There's no way you could absorb it any more than every writer, except possibly you. <laughs> only, you, know, you just write one draft and you write one draft and you write it in a day and you're done. That's how it works. That's exactly how it works. Yep. On this end. That's right. One day, yeah. one draft. That's my motto. <laughs> so there you go. So, you know, aside from that, uh, it's, it's much more time and work and thought consuming. So I'll put it away and there's always going to be some manuscript 
that I'm also working on because if everything came in on the same day, again, it would be really hard to get, um, I might be working on 20 books in a season. And so it's really hard to work on 20 books all at the same time. So you stagger them. So I would go to something else, work on that, either finish that off or put that away. Um, we also do other things that have to do with what is, what is the metadata for this book, which is something that people are like, what's metadata? And it's one of the most important things and most hated things any editor has to do because that's how books are found by what are the keywords? What is this book? Where would you find it in a library or a store? So when a book is new, you have to come up with all of these things and write descriptions that marketing and sales can use so that they can sell the book when it's finally done. So that's the thing you do. That's like cleaning your house or cleaning the toilet. Like when there's nothing else you could do or you really need a break from thinking, you do metadata. Eventually you go back to the outline and look it over a second time or a third time and make your comments and send it back to the author. And often when you send it back to the author, you're sending them an email saying, here, here are my comments, but here are the main things. Or this is great, but there are a few things. Or we really need to move chapter two to chapter four. So a lot of what an editor does, both in outline and manuscript, is what we would call structural editing which means looking at how the author has organized the material because you can have great material, you can have a lot of material, but you don't necessarily know how to put it in the right place. Now, something like Captured History has a pretty uh, firm setup, as most of the books that Capstone does has a pretty firm setup, but still there are ways that you can go wrong uh, or or just get a bit confused. So the way Captured History is set up is there's an introductory chapter. This is what happened. And it's unusual because most books uh, lead up to something. So the event doesn't happen till the end. But in Captured History, the event happens in the beginning. And then you have to go back and say, okay, how did we get here? Second chapter. And then third chapter is let's expand on this. And fourth chapter is what happened afterward. So it seems pretty standard, but I have one author in particular, not you. Uh, <laughs> Oof, what a relief. Yeah, she's fabulous, but she gets so involved with her material that she cannot see the forest for the trees. So I might get 16,000 words when I need 11,000. Oh, no. Oh, yes. And, and, and some editors just send those manuscripts back, and I... Might, depending on who it is, but with this particular author, I would never do that because she needs guidance, basically. And so I will go through it often a number of times. It's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle that you think, wait, this goes here. This is in chapter four. This goes there. This is really interesting. Wait, I think I read that before. So a lot of what you're doing as an editor is figuring out also, what will it be like for someone to read this? someone who's 10. And that's maybe the most important thing in children's publishing is that you have to think, if I knew nothing, because I was 10, and let's say you're writing about 9-11, a 10-year-old was very barely alive and certainly not conscious. So the things that we don't have to think about, because we were alive and we remember it, and it's unforgettable to us, they don't know about. Um, 
the Berlin Wall or the Vietnam War. These are ancient, ancient, ancient history. And so you have to think about those things. Um, but so the first thing that you do is to look at levels. Is, is it right for a kid? Is it structurally right? Does it read well? And eventually you also look at the language level. Can they understand it? But I'm talking about this as if it's a day. But in fact, of course, this is going to happen over a series of weeks and months. Right. So. Well, and Michelle, as you, you know, we're, we're talking about your side of, you know, the, um, of the process, you know, as I'm on the writerly side, I was really thinking about how much of your time, not just over the course of the day, but of the course of, of the whole uh, book process is spent building a relationship with the author and how carefully you consider your relationship with that author, how they write, what they're like, and then comparing that relationship to the material that they have sent you. For this author, I would send it back, but for this author, I know her and I would not send it back. And you know, I'm really, I, as a writer, I appreciate that. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see the relationship between the editor and the author from your perspective and talk to us a little bit about what you especially like to see in writers as aspiring writers listening to this podcast. This could be especially helpful. And what you especially don't like to see. Any of your special pet peeves from writers. Just let us in on it. Okay. Um, sure. Well, as somebody who is a writer as well as an editor, my relationship with my authors is very important to me, and I tend to look at things as a writer. So as a writer, I think, well, I don't want somebody telling me what to do, and I don't want somebody rewriting my words and their words. And as someone who was a journalist, I had good editors and bad editors, and the bad editors would just rewrite what I wrote and make it sound really clumsy and like something I would never write. And the good editors would work with me. They'd either talk me through it or um, or they would suggest, you know, try this, try that. And so that was always, that's always been the model that I followed. Not all editors, as you know, do that. But to me, I'm also very interested in building not just relationships with authors, but in building relationships with authors, then I'm building the author's and the books that I want, <laughs> because as as we learn together, then um, the author gets to know me and what I'm looking for, and they are much more likely to to do that uh, the second time around, or so I hope. Uh, but it's a give and take. I'm also learning a lot, and also as I've said, I'm not I'm not God. Strangely <laughs> enough, I'm <laughs> and and so sometimes I might suggest something and think. Or or not, uh, maybe that's wrong. Maybe you know, there's something that's not right here, and I think it's this, and this would work better. But tell me if I'm wrong. Right. And so, what I most like it in a writer is someone who also will engage and who will tell me if I'm wrong, but also will take suggestions if I'm right. And in a way, the the biggest word 
I have on either side is, is humility because what I don't like and where I tend to judge authors most are the ones who get, who are defensive or who really resist and say, no, you're wrong or no, I don't want to. And there are plenty of writers who yes. are like, I think I've been in writing groups with some of those writers, strangely. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, people who will not or cannot take constructive criticism are not going to get very far because they're just not learning. It's And, and really, if, when you're in children's publishing, the books can be great, but the books are not novels. They're, they're not meant to be independent works of art. Um, I had in a previous job, a previous publisher, I was working on a series about writers. So they were biographies of writers. And I had hired this person who was a friend of one of my very best writers ever. And he is a, was a professor, a retired professor of English. He was very bright. He was an excellent writer, but he absolutely wouldn't follow the script. Yes. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know him, I think. Right. And he was very, very curious of the idea that he needed to follow a script and that he just didn't care that these were kids and that these were books in a series and that they all had to follow the same pattern and he wouldn't do it. And so we didn't go ahead with the book and he certainly never got work um, in my company again. And, and I, he, in fact, I happen to know he went on and uh, self-published books uh, and they may be great, but uh, you know, I have not with them. <laughs> so well, that's the down and, and that's the side, I guess. That's right. And, um, you know, I can appreciate that as someone who's worked in children's and educational publishing, you know, for years, writing those books, that it really is, from the writerly perspective, just a fine balancing act between bringing your own voice and, you know, energy and enthusiasm to the material and also following the house specifications that the books are often part of a series and that they are written in a very specific way according to that series. And, you know, I would recommend any writer going in to go in with your eyes wide open that that is, that is, uh, you have to be okay with that right up front. Like that is the starting point. And, uh, you know, if that's not, that's not cool with you, then that's fine. But this kind of writing is not going to be for you. Exactly right. And it's very hard for writers to understand that, that they're writing a book in a series. The concept of series is alien to most writers and most editors. I, I was not aware of books, nonfiction books and series until I got hired by a school library publisher. I didn't know about that. And But once you learn it, then you realize, oh, right, if you're going to have four books, uh, the same topic, they have to sound pretty much alike. At, at the same time, as you said, though it also matters to me that a writer has his or her own voice um, at least on things that are on the upper level, because otherwise a kid is not going to read it. So it's a balance. You have to, the books have to be engaging. They have to be lively. They have to be something a kid would want to read, but they can't just go off and be whatever you would like them to Right. And there's a place for those books, but not, not here. And yeah. Michelle, I wanted to make sure that we have time to talk about a really different kind of book than the books that we have been discussing, which is your book, Hetty's Journey. This is your first 
picture book. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it is your first book as the author for kids. And not only that, but Hetty's Journey tells the true story of your mother's escape from Germany during World War II. Do I have that correct? That is correct. Not Germany. Hungary. Hungary. So I would love to hear about the motivation behind this story. What caused you to sit down and begin the project? If it was something that came to you in, in a burst of inspiration or if it was something that you had considered doing for many years. And then I would love for you to tell us how it felt to leap the divide and um, work on the other side of the editorial relationship after many years in the editor's chair, being the author of a book that was a really personal book. Um, and tell us a little bit about how working on that book as an author helped you to see your own editorial work differently, if it did. I realize that's a lot of questions, but you know, this is, this is a big deal. Well, thank you. And yes, it is a lot of questions, but I will do my best to, to handle them. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about them. So yes, this is my first book. I, uh, as mentioned, I've written a lot of journalism. I had written a couple of plays, but I never thought of writing a children's picture book. Because as mentioned, too, before I got into children's publishing, I never really was interested in But I had thought for many years um, about writing something about my mother's experience because it was such a unique experience. As I've said many other times, I think that the typical Holocaust story is somebody was in the camps and not to make light of it, but someone was in the camps, the concentration camps, and they, they either died or they survived. And so the story is about their being dying or, or surviving. Or if it's lately, um, in more recent years, the kinder transport. So then it is about children who were sent to safety in England from Germany and Austria. Again, um, very, very, very important stories, not to downplay them in any way but stories that have been told a lot. And my mother's story was very different story that I had never heard from anyone else because my mother was someone who, as a teenager, uh, had to cross Europe and, and through Nazi Germany alone in the middle of World War II uh, as her family was escaping Hungary. And obviously she survived or I would not be here. But the story of the Hungarian Jews has really not been told because... Hungary, unlike the rest of Europe, was not invaded until 1944, the last year of the war. So the Hungarian Jews were comparatively safe, but some of them understood that they were not really safe. They might not be safe for long. And among those was my mother's family and the story, Hetty's Journey, explains why they knew that they weren't safe and why they had to leave. But my mother had to go by herself because... They could only get, uh, she had a brother, and her parents could only get passage out for themselves and one other person. And so she was the eldest child. She got to go by herself. So it was a very, very scary journey um, with many pitfalls, including once they got to Portugal and reunited, and they couldn't get out because uh, Pearl Harbor happened. And eventually, obviously, they did get out and got on a ship and got to America. But 
it was a very unusual story that I wanted to tell, but I didn't know how to tell it. And as a young woman, I had written a lot of short stories, but it wasn't a short story and it wasn't fiction and it wasn't a play as far as I could see. And, and I didn't really know what it was. And while I was at Marshall Cavendish, my previous job, I had talked to the editorial director uh, fiction about doing it as a young adult novel or nonfiction story. But what she wanted me to do was something I didn't want to do. She wanted me to, there's a, a small meeting my mother has with a young man um, on route. And she wanted me to turn that into a romance. And I really did not want to do that for a number of reasons, not least that my mother, who is, uh, was then alive, but is now deceased, would have just been horrified um, at the idea. So I came to Capstone, and when I first came to Capstone, I wasn't in the editorial department. I was in the product planning department and as, as a product manager, and one of my jobs there was to come up with new series and new brands. And so I had come up with the idea of this picture book brand for older kids um, that would tell a pretty sophisticated story in nonfiction, but would do it with pictures. So not a graphic novel, but not a little baby, you know, picture book. So I had started that and we did a cup and there was also a longer form of that where in about a hundred pages or 150 pages, we would also tell a single nonfiction story, a dramatic nonfiction story. So as then an editor, uh, I worked on a longer book about the kinder transport, but we also did a picture book called Jars of Hope, which was about uh, a woman who saved children uh, during the Holocaust. And so I, you know, bopped along doing that. And then a couple of years into that, it was the Christmas holiday, ironically. And I was in the office because I'm Jewish and, you know, I don't need to take off. I get off Christmas Day and the day after, but we don't need to take the week. And so I was a little bit bored and it was very quiet. And I thought, aha, I could write my mother's story as a picture book for <laughs> this brand that I accidentally uh, came up with a couple of years ago. And so I sat down and I wrote it. I just wrote it in a couple hours or maybe. It was oh, wow, Michelle. And then I, yeah. Yeah. So after 20 years, it came out of me in you know, 20 years. That's amazing. <laughs> yep. So it was just, <laughs> it's quite the story. It was meant to be. And then I thought, what am I going to do with it? And eventually, obviously, I figured out, oh, well, maybe since I have this brand and everything, maybe Capstone would be interested. And they were. And and then, yes, and then came the editing. And who edited you, Michelle? Ed who was that person to you? Was it someone you knew? Well, with someone I knew, of course, and worked in the same office with, but we'd never worked together because she worked at that time. Capstone was separated into school library, classroom, and trade divisions. Right. And she worked in the trade division. So I certainly knew her well enough to, you know, say hello to and chit chat with, but we had not ever worked together. And so when it was assigned to her, I waited. <laughs> like, have I embarrassed myself? And she's just trying to figure out how to tell me. What's going on, right? <laughs> finally, and speaking of embarrassed, like finally, she said, well, we do this thing in trade where we sometimes take a book 
And everybody who's in the department looks at it and, and basically tries their hand at editing it. Great. <laughs> yes. And I, after following a lot and thought, well, should I take this? I don't know how to take this. Should I take this as a compliment? Or, you know, and she said, yes, because everybody really wanted to read it. And I thought, okay. So Good. Well. Phew. But that's good, cool. but nothing like multiple. Oh, editing. absolutely. All writers love to have multiple editors' hands on the manuscript. Absolutely. And so then when she came back to me, after she had to sort through, it took a long time because she had to sort through all of it, she wanted me to take a direction that I was not crazy about, but I was being edited, and so I was on the other side of the of the fence, so to speak, and at and as you know, I'm not happy with uncooperative <laughs> editors myself. Uh, and, and so I thought, okay, well, I'll try this. But it was a little bit confusing. Um, but then I got into it. I thought, all right, like I can see this is and, – and what she wanted me to do was introduce some dialogue between the daughter and the mother because the thought was this would bring kids in more. And, and so I did it. And it wasn't a lot. Um, I wasn't crazy about it, but I thought, okay, if, if this is what it takes, I haven't worked on a picture book before. And there were other things she wanted me to do that I thought were definitely the right things to do. They were hard for me, but I knew she was right. And that was to introduce more emotion into the story. And, and I knew she was right about that because that's hard for me. I, I'm, you know, I'm someone who I've done a lot of journalism. I've written a lot of dialogue, but getting at the feeling that was tough, but I did that. And I thought that really, really, really strengthened the story. And so that was good, but it was not easy. And it was also not easy to rewrite because I had a full-time day job. Oh, right. Let's not forget that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so and to get into that mental headspace where I'm just focused on something. So I did most of the rewrite. Uh, initial rewrite while I was in fact technically on vacation um, at my niece's house in California while she was at work. Um, but that was good. And then what happened was that, as mentioned earlier, there's always an editorial approver. And the editorial approver was someone that I knew quite well, um, one of the managers in my department. So again, we'd never worked together, but she took a look at the script and said, I hate this dialogue. Take oh, it out. <laughs> I just had a moment where I thought, oh, I have been there, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> but I, my response was actually, oh, thank you. I am so glad that you are looking at this because I hate this dialogue. But you get to say it because you're the editorial right. approver. But it was very awkward and funny because I went there. So everybody was kind of tripping over being really polite. Right. And <laughs> saying, well, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, but, and venturing the editor thought I wanted, I mean, it was just like, a, just a, they talk about Minnesota nice and there was a lot of that. Yes. Yes. I can imagine. <laughs> so, so once we got through that and the dialogue was gone, but the emotional resonance was put in, um, there were still minor things, you know, as you know, there's always tweaks back and forth, tweaks back and forth. And we also, on all of our nonfiction books, we have a consultant. And I was very worried about what the consultant would say. And I had this crazy thing. I think, what if he says that this is not true when none of it happens? <laughs> you say, how could that be? But maybe he will say it, but maybe he won't. 
yes. And, and of course he didn't because that's ridiculous. Um, but he did have a couple of comments that were helpful in terms of the history of Hungary that, you know, went beyond things that I knew. And, um, and so that was helpful. But the biggest part of working on a picture book, the biggest part that was uh, most time consuming as well and toughest was working with an illustrator. That's right. Because, and what had happened was because this was historical and my family, I had a lot of reference material that uh, I gave to the art director to give to the illustrator, but at first he just didn't look at it. No. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. And so things came up looking really wrong, and people looked nothing like the people in my family, and, and the suitcases could not have been from that era. And so there was all of that. Um, but then, but then everything again, once we talked to him and the art director was great, everything was beautiful. I, it, he did a fabulous job and he just needed, I guess, to be focused in and to look at what he was given. And, uh, and again, I was very lucky as an in-house author to have that much input on the sketches and illustrations. That's something that wouldn't have been true had I sold this to a big publisher and not work there because usually the authors are just not let in um, at all or until very late in the process. So, so that was very lucky. So in terms of how it changed me as an editor. Yeah. Did it at all? Or did you find that like, you know, the, the ways that you worked with authors still held true that they were, that they were good ways. And then after being through your own process, you found that, that they were still good ways. Yeah. I think, that it made me again, you know, sensitive uh, to how authors take comments or, or criticism. I don't know that it changed anything in what I do. Yeah, that they were good. <laughs> you know? the, the way that you were interacted with your authors held up after being through it yourself. I I think so. I hope so. Uh, but it was it was so good to have that experience and remember that you know there's. It never hurts to be reminded again and again, there's a person on the other end. Because as an editor, there are days, well, like anybody, when I'm cranky or I'm just, you know, <laughs> you know that little bit of meanness where you're like, really? Like, how, how could you possibly think that uh, I am just going to throw something in, Emma, that might resonate with you, that the Rolling Stones <laughs> came way after the Beatles? So, yes, yes. <laughs> So it might behoove me to say to be you know, a little bit gentle with that. So I, I'm not sure I always succeed, but I, I try for that. And I do think that that helped to have that experience and to remember you know, what it's like to be on the other side. Well, Michelle, I'm so glad that we could hear about um, about the experience with, with Hetty's journey and that we could conclude on that note because it really is a fascinating story. Um, and I, I feel like you and I could just talk all day about um, – uh, of the editorial relationship and, and authors and, um, and and trade war stories back and forth, which is the funnest part. But um, I'm really glad that you could join us. Thank you so much, Emma, for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's really great to be able to talk about all of these things. For the Cincinnati Public Library, I'm writer-in-residence Emma Carlson-Byrne. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Writer's Head. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. 
You can meet Emma at various events throughout the year or at open office hours on the third Saturday of every month from 10 a.m. until noon at the Coryville Branch Library. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash writer-in-residence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes and leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you for listening.